Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. This week on the show, we have Johannes Broadwall. Chris, tell us a little bit about Johannes. Johannes is a Norwegian software engineer, architect, teacher and influencer whose work saves lives and keeps people safe. We talk about Norwegian search and rescue, including the challenges and logistics of organising public, private and voluntary sectors when things really matter. And we talk about Norway's version of the Test and Trace app for COVID-19, how the initial app raised some serious security concerns and the part he played in remedying those. Well, I have to say, this week's episode is an absolute cracker. I wasn't around for the recording, so it's Chris flying solo in this one. So, without further ado, here is Johannes Broadwall. I'm Johannes Broadwall. I'm, I'm uh, from Oslo, Norway. I have worked for about 20 years building software and teaching others how to build software. Currently, I uh, work on a program that's used to uh, hopefully save lives in search and rescue operations. I do that work through uh, Soprestera, which is a, a pretty large consultancy, both in Norway and in the rest of Europe. But as a side gig also through my employer i'm uh, i teach um uh, lately uh, remotely at a local college and uh, i've also been part of the um, uh, of the professional council or advisory board for the norwegian uh, contact tracing application which um, was in its first incarnation pretty harshly criticized for poor uh, privacy but in its current incarnation it's uh, in a much better state. So those are probably the most interesting highlights of my career, I think, at the moment. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, there's plenty for us to unpack, I think, today. Um, but to start with, um, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background then. So how, how did you get started? You've been in the industry for 20 years. What, what got you into, uh, into technology? I think it was pretty much accidental. I was um, in my <laughs> teenage years, I had a Commodore 64 at home, uh, so I'm from that generation, and I really did not understand it at all. I thought BASIC was the weirdest thing ever. I was totally unable to do anything more than uh, write down from like uh, uh, gaming magazines. I would write the code, the BASIC code for some simple programs. And I had no clue what was going on. So I pretty much concluded that computers were not for me. <laughs> so <laughs> how did that all turn around then? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I, uh, when I started at the university, I uh, thought I would study uh, physics. Uh -huh. And I did really poorly in physics. Uh, but I had to do computer science as a, a lecturer. And I really enjoyed it. So I thought in my teenage years that I would not uh, do anything much with computers. But... Uh, when I started learning it in earnest, I thought it was uh, um, pretty interesting. So it's kind of, uh, it's, I think it's sort of the way you're supposed to have a career, but everybody else has a more interesting origin story, I think. Well, was there, a, was there a light bulb moment then when it all of a sudden started to make sense for you? Because I, I think I went through a similar thing, really, of finding coding hard when I was a, when I was a kid. I didn't have a Commodore 64. It's, a, it's amazing how many Commodore 64s there are in people's past, but uh, <laughs> I, unfortunately I didn't have one. Um, but it, was there a light bulb moment for you when you figured out it all makes sense now? 
I can't uh, really pinpoint that light bulb moment, but the, I, I've seen it in others now. Now I'm starting to get a little bit of gray hair, and so I don't remember everything from back then. But when I teach now at college, I can see, so I generally I teach um, the third semester that the students uh, have in uh, computers or te technology. And uh, at that point in time, there is a pretty big divide between uh, students that have grokked it and students that haven't. And it is, uh, it's, uh, I think, a very uh, a fun semester to teach because a lot of students get over that, uh, get through that light bulb moment. And um, I've started really recognizing this um, because there is a uh, cognitive leap that you have to take to kind of, I guess it is when you start compiling the code in your head, when you start like mentally debugging, when you start executing the code as the computer would and everything starts making sense. Before that, it's kind of just magic formulas and nobody really, and in the first years, I think a lot of students really have no mental model to reflect what's going on. Yeah, it's still a little bit magic, I think, how it all goes from being computer code into uh pictures and images and all of that sort of stuff i think it, you know how does it get down to being zeros and ones it's still a little compl complicated yeah. uh, <laughs> there's certain certain gaps in the knowledge i think for everybody but i'd like to talk about this search and rescue operation so how how on earth did you get involved in doing search and rescue and uh, and, and tell us a little bit more about that uh, so the, especially in norway but it might be the case in other um, parts of the world as well um the search, so search and rescue operations are a joint effort. We're a huge country in terms of uh, geography, uh, not so many people. Um, mm -hmm. And that means that um, when there is a, a boat that capsizes or somebody is lost in the mountains on a hiking trip, it might, uh, you might not have the right um, people around. Uh, and uh, for, for um, uh, as long as uh, we've done systematic search and rescue in Norway, so you have the, the volunteer sector, uh, you have um, uh, organizations like the Red Cross and others, uh, you have the commercial sectors. In Norway we have uh, fish farms, and many of these fish farms have boats that, are, that have uh, cranes and that have um, uh, rescue equipment on them, uh, but they're not part of the rescue service as such. And then you have uh, the, um, uh, the government rescue uh, operation as well, which is people from the police, you have the fire rescue service, and you have helicopters, rescue helicopters, uh, and different, um, uh, and of course, Coast Guard. Uh, and these have different chains of command. I mean, first you have the, the private, the volunteer, and the, um, and the public sector, and mm -hmm. all of those have obvious different chains of commands, but also within the uh, public sector, there's military, like the Coast Guard is part of the military, and there's police, which is part of, um, uh, of an other sector, there's um, the Coastal Service, which is part of the transportation uh, department, so there's... Uh, Quite a lot of different sectors to navigate. <laughs> exactly. So about um, eight years ago, before I was involved, um, the Coastal Service in Norway uh, started a uh, project to try and coordinate uh, these um, different resources that can be used in rescue operations. And the problem that they have in that setting is that in order to do this, you need 
pretty good mix of skills with building a UI. You need integration skills. Uh, we're, we're also making uh, apps for um, reporting people's position. We, um, you have to have a pretty good user insight. You have to be able to deliver software quickly and you cannot have a very big team because this is trying to improve something that is already done. Mm. So you don't have a huge budget for it. So they, they really couldn't uh, hope to recruit, I think, a professional software development team um, that would work in inside of the coastal service because uh, there's they do a lot of things that have very little to do with software. So getting high, uh, like a world-class or, or national-class software um, engineering team is pretty difficult. And so in order to um, do this um, a project, they could have asked for a traditional government tender where they have a requirement specification, mm -hmm. ask different consultancies or, or different um, uh, contractors if they, what price they would need to build it and so on. But the problem in this situation, especially in a when you're in a coordinated environment with lots of actors that are moving that have their own projects so uh, each of these volunteer organizations have their own uh, procurements of different IT um, solutions it might be a new app that they're using it might be uh, integration with a CRM system they might have something where they cannot afford to change it at this point in time so you need to be agile in, in what you're building as well because you have to seize the opportunities that are there. So both in terms of the tender and in terms of the contract, uh, the Coastal Service um, had a pretty um, innovative, I think, agile approach to the contracting. So how's this actually, how's this actually set up then? The initial uh, contract, the, the awarding the contract, uh, was done through a actual competition, if you like. All oh, right. Uh, so I think it is, uh, there was um, uh, about uh, five suppliers or so, uh, and uh, each of those uh, got hired uh, for, I think, two sprints, like four, four weeks, mm -hmm. uh, where they were supposed to um, show uh, the customer how, are, how do you work in an agile way, how do you clarify requirements, how do you deliver software, how do you develop how does your teams work? And then uh, at the end of these two iterations, what can you deliver? That's interesting. So did um, they get did they get paid for that delivery, or was it this is part of the tender? Uh, I was not involved at that point in time, <laughs> so I can uh, I can uh, uh, speculate freely, and I'll say yes, they definitely got paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we I, may I, or may not know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that in a contract like that, that's that's certainly on the table that you would mm. then pay five suppliers for running the, these four weeks of software development, mm. and then in this situation, they awarded two contracts for two different parts of their the total scope so we are um, one of the suppliers and um, one of our good competitors is another supplier I'm, I'm sure they're also doing a very good job <laughs> with the parts <laughs> that they're developing that's a really novel way of uh, of putting out a tender i mean i don't think i've heard of that before no i uh, don't think i've heard it before or after and i really like the approach yeah it's very clever so what you're saying that's about eight years ago yeah, I think so. That's uh, especially even for eight years ago. That's very, very novel. Um, 
how interesting. In, in terms of how it was awarded then and, and the parts that you and your uh, competitor, doing a very good job as well, are, uh, are, are concerned about, <laughs> where, where does, how, does that, um, how are those two responsibilities divided? And do you, as competitors, have to work together also? Uh, the way that they have uh, split up this total program, it's, uh, we're pretty far divided, so we don't have much to do with each other. So you can remain competitors and enemies. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we <laughs> probably would be able to work pretty well together anyway, because we would have a pretty clearly defined yeah. interface. And in essence, it would not be much different from two teams both trying to do their best uh, mm-hmm. in, inside of a company. Um, but um, I think that the uh, Coastal Service probably could have um, uh, could have uh, gotten some more benefits if we had been able to integrate the teams more closely. But that's even harder, I think, than pulling off this uh, kind of process in the first place. Absolutely. So the uh, so the the area of responsibility that you are responsible for is coordinating all of these different uh, vessels, aircraft, vehicles, equipment, uh, personnel as well. That's a hell of a lot of stuff to have to um, to have to deal with. How do you uh, how do you approach a problem like that? Because it's quite unique. You know, most of us are dealing with building e-commerce websites uh, <laughs> broadly that's probably the biggest uh, the biggest area that we all work in so um obviously some people get to work in more, much more exciting uh, areas like this so tell us how how do you how do you start designing an application that deals with that and and what are the what are the difficulties you have to solve one of the difficulties is obviously the type of information you want to put into the system is a pretty um hard to determine to begin with, and it might be somewhat dynamic as well. Mm. A lot of different sources as well, I imagine. Yeah, so there has to be a um, combination of the human effort and the, um, uh, and the technical effort as well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the, um, a company called uh, um, Redniskapa in Norwegian, let's say the, the rescue uh, company, <laughs> I'm, uh, which is a uh, foundation. They own a lot of uh, rescue boats that are um, used uh, for coastal rescue. Uh, And they're uh, technically a private organization, a foundation that lives on donations from their members. Mm. Uh, And um, uh, they're called the Sea Rescue Society. Right. They have their processes where they know where all of their, um, uh, where all all their vessels are, uh, what state they're in, and so on. job is to make sure we have uh, we know both people with um, a sort of business uh, responsibility and people with a technical responsibility so in the case of sea rescue society i think i think it was them that uh, one of my colleagues had a phone call this morning with uh, the cto i think in um, it's a pretty small it organization but uh, we had uh, a personal call with them and we know them by their first names we know uh, we've coordinate on their schedules and our schedules so that we make changes to the our API when they need those changes to be mm-hmm. made. I guess it's pretty much the same as in any other field. You have to know your customers, you have to know mm-hmm. your users, you have to talk with your users. Similarly, uh, we had uh, one of uh, the, um, one of our other volunteer organizations sent an email to one other of my colleagues that he forwarded to me about some problems they had on Sunday uh, with a rescue operation where our system didn't quite perform as it should have. 
I call him back and first I, re I examine the bug a little bit so I know that I can reproduce the behavior. I have a pretty good idea of what he experienced. And uh, this is uh, someone who's a volunteer, as far as I know, for one of these uh, volunteer organizations. Uh, but he's got a coordinating role. And so I called him up and said, you know, we're from a team that uh, makes the software that you used. And we got, I got this email. I just wanted you to know that uh, we think this is a pretty serious issue. I think I've got it resolved and I hope to have a bug by Wednesday, uh, fixed by Wednesday. Mm. And I think that having that care for your users, the interest in what they're doing, the personal contact, that is always key. Absolutely. I mean, it's quite a hard problem to solve as well, I'd guess, because, you know, well, you're talking, you're talking about having a bug there and uh, incidents and issues in this sort of scenario, um, people might die. I guess so. It's uh, it's it's quite an important job to make sure that these things are uh, are working as expected. Uh, yes. So, uh, how do you how do you make sure that these things are um, as well structured as possible? I, I imagine you know we talked about tests earlier. I imagine this needs a particularly strong test harness around it. Testing is a part of it, and um, but. Uh, you know what what always slips through the net is what uh what you didn't think of to test mm, mm. which was the case in this particular situation i can actually go into the detail of a bug it's kind of uh, interesting coincidence there sure. um uh, the second part is to have monitoring and um, i built my own um, monitoring dashboards that have uh, traffic lights for all of our all of the instances of our software running on all of the servers so I actually have it on the screen next to me as we speak. So if something starts uh, blinking red, then I might uh, drop out for a moment. So There's no problem, absolutely. <laughs> we, we would understand that you need, to, uh, you need to go and deal with some of these things. But generally, I mean, the services are not uh, frequently used, but when they're used, uh, they, uh, it can matter quite a bit. Well, yeah, I mean, to return to what you were saying before about you know, Norway being such a, such a vast country, um, with such a small population, because what five point three million or something yeah, people? Something like that. I um, you've got better numbers than me. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we've had Norwegians on before, uh, and we've spoken about <laughs> about some of the, uh, the the population sizes of Norway. So that's um, that's embedded in the brain now. Um, <laughs> so, but the, it, you are such a huge country, and uh, having to do that coordination between all of the different types of services you talked in, talked about, including the public. How do you how do you deal with that coordination i mean the business rules into that must be particularly complex but so we want to avoid complex business rules because mm. uh, the business rules are not used uh, very often and when they're used it matters a lot so mm -hmm. it will be very speculative there are two pieces of information that is the most important to us in the rescue operation uh, the first one is uh, the location and mm -hmm. the second one is the phone number of uh, uh, how you can activate a resource. So that means if you're if there's a rescue dog, you need to know where's the um, owner and where's the dog, and or rather, uh, is the dog with the owner is a important uh, question. Uh, so how how quickly can they be there, and who do you call uh, to get them to to join this rescue operation or or SMS? Similarly, where's the what phone number do you call to get to the um, captain on one of those rescue vessels mm. and those are pretty simple old-fashioned information but that's that's what it boils down to 
Um, Do you rely on a lot of location-based data for these things as well? We try and get it as much as we can from mm -hmm. various sources. And um, we, we've tried to have uh, business rules around our location data. So when the coordinators, when they're looking at the different uh, resources in a map or in a list, uh, they want to know, is this uh, location, is it recent or is it uh, old? And we used to have a pretty complex uh, set of business rules to determine whether we showed the dot in orange or blue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we call those raspberries or blueberries. <laughs> and, uh, what was, what's the significance of the colors? Uh, the, the, blues, uh, the blue have a, recent, uh, a recently updated location. Right, I see, I see. And then we had some rules for when should a dot turn orange, go from being uh, blue to being orange. And uh, uh, we discovered that our uh, users did not understand at all those rules. And it was very hard to kind of get a grasp around it. And then we went down to saying, you know, if the, if the location has been updated within 24 hours, it's blue. Mm. Otherwise, it's red. So the less complexity, uh, the easier it is for us and for the users. So that's much simpler. But you, you must have to uh, deal with a lot of data coming through if you're going to be taking some of these location updates. How, how do you process that data and make sure that it's as accurate as possible? It's uh, not that much data, actually. Most of, oh, some, really? uh, so we're coordinating um, a few different sources. A lot of the information is publicly available, uh, like AIS. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but the radio trackers that are on all vessels um, is a public source that we're uh, consuming. Uh, we have a dedicated source for uh, some things like the Sea um, Rescue Society, and we have uh, some dedicated sources for various other locations as well. With volunteers, are you taking in data from their usage of the app as well? Yeah, so they have. Uh, there's. We've created a custom app for our volunteers where they mm -hmm. can uh, consent to reporting their uh, current location. So, in that situation, privacy is obviously a um, a concern. So we want to make sure that it's totally voluntary uh, for uh, for these volunteers to report their location, mm -hmm. and that they understand who gets the location and that they understand that we only keep the last uh, location that we have uh, so that uh, we don't track them, we get the current location. Was there, uh, was there any complexity in setting that up and communicating the type of data that you were going to collect? Because there's, you know, this, this is a nice segue into some other parts of the conversation that we're going to go into, but coll data collection and, uh, privacy is is pretty key in apps and there's a whole lot of talk about that in the uk at the minute and for various other different applications um how did you guys work around it for this particular application we actually had to go forward and be more concerned about it than most of our users mm. uh, because most of the users uh they are uh, in these volunteer organizations because they like to go on rescue missions out in the out in the wilderness that's what they want to do, right? Mm. That's, I mean, they wouldn't join these these organizations if they didn't uh, care about uh, being part of these operations. And uh, the fact that their uh, location is shared with the rescue services, the public rescue services, that's uh, uh, for, I think, everybody we've talked to are, um, think that is a very nice thing to have happen. 
but of course, we have to think about um, uh, those few that don't want it and those situations where it can be uh, abused nevertheless. One thing is that um, if, you're, if you were part of a rescue operation, then the rescue services know that you were there and they know that you were in that location. That's part of the um, operation. Mm-hmm. But, uh, of course, the app also reports your location when you're at home or when you're maybe when you're at a hospital giving uh, where, the, where, uh, where your kids are getting born. Maybe, um, I mean, you might be at a mistress. <laughs> you, you never know <laughs> what kind of, uh, um, uh, what kind of uh, a situation people are in. And sometimes it's not something you want to share. And mm-hmm. then... To, uh, to be aware of uh, those complexities. I think uh, most users stumble into a situation, if they, if they ever get into a situation where they, um, where they are concerned about the privacy, they stumble into it. It wasn't, it wasn't something that they were concerned about until all of a sudden they became but, concerned yeah, about it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so we have to be uh, forward uh, and uh, try and um, make sure that we don't collect information we don't need to have. Mm-hmm. And I think, from my uh, my perspective, the m- most important um, uh, consideration is that of retention. In our scenario, we only need to uh, give the current location of a person. The historical location is not relevant uh, yeah yeah with the exception of when you're part of an, a rescue operation so I when you're on the job then the location might be important for um, for example for analyzing how the operation was executed whether whether we searched all those places we should have searched and so on but that's we haven't really gotten to that part yet so um, we've uh, made sure that our data everything from the database design up is geared towards only having the most recent location of the person. Was there something that led you to that sort of conclusion? Uh, or was the, is, is this something that, did you start from that point of view? Or is that something that you came to over time? I think that we started from that point of view in this uh, situation because um, I had been inoculated with privacy concerns a little bit earlier. Um, um, I was part of a uh, task force with the Norwegian Data Protection Agency to to create a, um, a set of guidelines for um, privacy by design, and that's I was interesting. A fresh off of that work. <laughs> so, is this right? So, in terms of the direction we're going now, <laughs> is this to do with the um, the your equivalent of the Test and Trace app within within Norway, or is it is this before? It's uh, way before. It was, way before. Uh, way yeah. before. Okay, so uh, so how did you get involved in that initially, and then we'll we'll take that through to the uh, to to this uh, test and trace equivalent in in Norway. Right. So um, I think that we all were pretty concerned in uh, March of uh, 2020. Uh, mm. So I don't know about you, but I was certainly thinking, you know, what can I do to help, mm-hmm. or what can we as a profession do to help? And um, uh, about I think uh, March. 20th or so, there was um, a, on the news in Norway, uh, the Norwegian Institute of Public Health announced that they were planning to have this sort of contact tracing application 
mm-hmm. where the app would register who you were close to and um, it could alert you if you were um, if you had been close to somebody who had been infected. So it was a um, research organization, um, similar uh, research laboratory, um, who uh, was um, initially suggesting this app. And mm-hmm. the, they're not really a software development company or an app company. Uh, so um, I right away offered uh, that uh, Software Stereo could um, provide some of the um, manpower needed to make this app. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit of dialogue with the uh, Norwegian Institute of Public Health, but of course they were pretty jammed down with everything going down, so they couldn't pursue all of the different um, threads. Uh, but as I learned more about the plan, I was concerned that it didn't seem like they took privacy as a primary concern when developing this app. Mm. And um, I did uh, try and get in contact with somebody there and say, you know, uh, whatever you do, make sure that you follow up on privacy because it will be a lot of hassle if you don't. Mm-hmm. And then you can say whether I was prophetic or whether I created that situation, <laughs> I think people will dispute. Uh, because as the details of this app was being known um, uh, together with um, uh, a few other um, uh, technology leaders in uh, uh, comp- competing companies and elsewhere, uh, we got together and wrote a, um, a joint statement requesting a upgrade of the privacy of this app. Okay, so I mean, let's let's go back a little bit with this because obviously, contract contract contact tracing applications started spinning up all over the globe. Um, there was no real coordinated effort globally. Uh, they were all, I mean, in the UK, for example, there were several several contact tracing apps were, were set up, including the one that was done by the, uh, the National Health Service itself. And uh, for more information on that, you can listen to episode 10 of our show, but because <laughs> we've covered contact tracing before. Yeah, um, that's a wider, uh, a tra- a wider perspective as well. It's, yeah, it was a very nice episode. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good conversation, and I, I think in, in terms of how this this came about across the world, I'm I'm not really particularly familiar with exactly how this came together in Norway. So obviously, you had proposed through your organisation that this is something that you know you could help with. Were there other organisations in Norway that were? creating their own sort of versions versus the one that was created by the government. I mean, talk to me a little bit about the backstory. I think that uh, pretty much everybody in Norway concluded right away that this, if this is to be done, it has to be done by the um, uh, Institute of Public Health. It mm. has to be done by the public sector. It cannot be, uh, it cannot be um, championed by a private corporation. Uh, so I think everybody who was, um, a, who was cognizant of um, of this approach had uh, um, offered their help to, to uh, for the for the public sector, but um, nobody, I, as far as I know, proposed their own uh, initiative. Was it, was it developed pretty quickly then? The first version of the app. Yeah, the the first version of the app. So um, it was uh, first discussed, as far as I know, uh, just around lockdown, which was the twelfth of March. Uh, there mm. was some initial com- uh, communication and um, uh, a lot of the backstory has been uh, public, uh, made public through inform- uh, freedom of information requests. All right. Okay. Uh, so, so there's a lot of public information there and um, uh, the app was uh, 
launched uh, uh, with, uh, with by the Prime Minister on a national press conference on, I think, the 26th of uh, April. So that's pretty quick then. I think that might be faster than we managed to... Well, it's certainly a lot faster than we had a working version in the UK. <laughs> oh, well, yes. Uh, the first version that's there, um, through other um, freedom information requests, that's actually available on GitHub now. Um, mm. They didn't want to make it available. At the point in time, they said uh, first that it would be a security uh, problem if it was available, uh, like a, a threat. And second, mm. they said... They didn't want repressive governments around the world to get hold of this. That's actually a quote, which I thought was, yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, so there must have been some security concerns in there then, definitely. Well, yeah. Uh, so, But uh, the app uh, in itself was not, uh, uh, was not that advanced. Basically, mm. what it does is that it, um, uh, you register with your phone number um, with the central database. You get an ID back from this central database and then you would broadcast that ID on Bluetooth and you would uh, record all the ideas that you um, that you see uh, together with your um, uh, with the strength of the radio signal which is mm -hmm. uh, a proxy for distance uh, and uh, you would also record a GPS location or GPS a GPS trace and you would continuously or rather about I think one once per hour, you would dump this up to I think it was Azure IoT Hub that they used for this. So there, so the uh, app was not much more than a data harvesting device. Yeah, and a uh, lot of data as well, I presume. A lot of data, and I mean, um, I think they did have some challenges getting just the throughput uh, of the data here, but oh, I uh, but I haven't actually uh, looked at the numbers for that. Um, then they would uh, put all of the data in a central database, and they had um, uh, your basic Python data analysis scripts that were supposed to analyze that data. They were able to collect as far as we have uh, uh, as far as we've been able to establish that we're able to collect data for the lifetime of the operation or of the of the app of the operation of the app um, but the scripts are also available in github and it doesn't look like they could get very much out of the data at, at the point in time wow. when, the, when the app was shut down so how do so how do we, obviously you you've got the app going live uh, you've got a very simple data harvesting device you've got the privacy statement that yourself and a few others signed and put toward put together at what point did the app get taken down then <laughs> um it was taken down I, th I think it was the 16th of june so that right. was less than 2 months of uh, of being alive Wow. And so how uh, how did this start to escalate then in terms of, you know, was it denied initially or, you know, was there any pushback from, from the government? Um, the, um, the Norwegian Data Protection Agency um, were paying pretty close attention to the app. Um, mm. And they said, initially they said, uh, we would no, never have allowed this app uh, during a peacetime uh, situation. Wow. So they said this, is, this was uh, that they were willing to um to entertain it uh, for uh, for a while because uh, it was such an exceptional situation um and they did uh, uh, they did send a few uh, letters back and forth between the institute of public health and um, data protection agency these are all public uh information 
And as I read them, um, the Data Protection Agency said, uh, your, uh, your data collection does not map well to your achievable purpose of collecting that data. Mm. So you're collecting data that you cannot use for the purpose that you've stated that you, that you want to collect it. Some, uh, somewhat outside of the remit then, really? Like yeah. you're collecting too much data? Or rather, you're not able to use the data that you're collecting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, the answers that I saw uh, seem to indicate that uh, the term, when, when uh, the data protection agency said, uh, so you're collecting more data than what's necessary for the purpose of the app, you can't justify the purpose of the app, um, mm -hmm. or rather you have to explain uh, more thoroughly the purpose of the app. They said, they answered basically, the purpose of the app is to stop the pandemic. Of course, this is a good purpose. And, and, <laughs> Can't really uh, argue against that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so the, I think there was a kind of misunderstanding between the, how specific a purpose um, mm. for data collection have to be and how that has to be directly related to the data that you're collecting. The app was shut down in June, as you said. Um, what, what happened then? What happened next? A few days before it was shut down, uh, the, um, I, uh, there was a report from Amnesty International uh, that uh, uh, had analyzed um, contact tracing applications uh, in uh, many parts of the world. Mm. Uh, and they um, said that uh, in Norway, together with, I think, Bahrain and Kuwait, had uh, developed some of the most invasive mass surveillance tools they had ever <laughs> surveyed. <laughs> wow. That, that's quite an indictment. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, uh, uh, not to um, down talk anyone in particular, but in general, putting Norway in the category of Middle Eastern countries where, uh, in terms of being <laughs> having mass surveillance is not something we're very used to. Well, yeah, that seems a little out of character for Norway, I think, in terms of what I know. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope, but, but I mean, uh, we, we do see some strange um, uh, initiatives like this uh, elsewhere mm. as well. Uh, and so, um, so there was that report, and then pretty much off the heels of that, the Data Protection Agency um, issued a uh, demand for suspension of data collection for the app. And so that's a formal letter telling the Institute of Public Health that they have to stop using the app. Mm. And I think the same day or the day after, uh, the Norwegian Parliament made a resolution that the app had to be split into separate purposes because... When it was initially launched, um, it was unique in that it had two uh, purposes. First, it was to detect and contain um, infections. Mm -hmm. uh, but second, it was to do uh, research on the spread of infection and also on whether, I think, whether people were following government recommendations or not. Uh, it was a little bit unclear what was um, what was within the scope of um, a research, mm, but mm. these two purposes, um, tracing infection and uh, uh, doing research, those are pretty different purposes. Yes, I can understand that. I can see how they're connected, though, in a way. You do need the same data for them, or yeah. you need some of the same data, but the fundamental difference is that... Um, 
if I'm using an app to uh, detect um, infections or to stop mm. infections, this is an app that I install for the purpose of protecting me and those around me. Sure. If I'm donating my data to a research program, that data is, uh, is of a different character. Now, many people, I think, would uh, consent to both purposes. But those are two very fundamentally different um, things that you're doing with the app. In the one case, I'm using this app to protect myself. In the other case, I am helping the government get data that they can use to better uh, make changes and recommendations to prevent this infection and other infections in the future. Mm. And uh, to require, and there was not in the app a separate, two separate consents for these two purposes, which is the first point in our um, statement against the app was that uh, when you have two purposes that are that uh, the separate, you have to have separate consent for those two purposes. And so how has that uh, evolved then? Has this evolved into two apps or has it evolved into a single app with two consents? Um, they uh, dropped the research part. Oh, okay. So well, That's one way of dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, they dropped the whole app and then they developed a different app. Right. So how did, how did that come about then? Was, it, was there a gap there where there was no app around? Yes. Did that negatively impact on the coronavirus response in Norway? Uh, it's hard to say because we've been pretty um, lucky with um, how um, how little coronavirus has affected us. Mm. Even at the worst, uh, I think we've got less than a thousand deaths, uh, even from uh, March in uh, 2020. Really? So wow. it's uh, it's a um, so we were. Through luck or other means, we were able to contain it much better than other countries. What, what do you think it was that contributed to that? I mean, we're off the topic a little bit from technology, I suppose. But <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what do you think sort of contributed to Norway having a better response? Were you guys just better at dealing with lockdown? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, the joke that's uh, initially actually about Finns, but you can apply to Norwegians <laughs> as well, which to say was to say that you know. Uh, the government no longer has a recommendation that everybody keep uh, a two meters distance, so everybody can co go back to keeping their normal three meter distance that they <laughs> <laughs> normally do. I so see. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, so. This is this is of course uh, a uh, uh, probably not a true stereotype, but um, but I think we are fewer people, and most of the country lives pretty spread out. So I mm. think that for a large part of the population, it was easier to avoid uh, crowds than what it would be most other places. Did you, do you guys have a, uh, do you have a lot of people who are anti-mask or are people just happy to wear a mask and get on with it? Um, we didn't, we um, didn't have any uh, perceivable anti-mask movement. Mm. We had a little bit of uh, anti-vaccine movement, but oh, really? uh, not, uh, not anti-mask as far as I've seen. Yeah, it, it, London is a bit strange because uh, that's where, where I'm based. And I don't know if it was exclusively or explicitly anti-mask. People just didn't bother wearing them, mm. <laughs> which was very strange. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, th you'd have the government telling you you're in lockdown. And in fact, we're supposedly still in lockdown at the moment. 
and uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a mask, uh, except for if you go into a shop. You know, there's uh, a, a lot of places you'll just walk around a relatively crowded street in London, as every street is crowded. Um, no masks, no masks. People just don't bother. Mm. Um, which is probably why we've got one of the highest death rates. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh... really not a laughing matter, actually. But uh, anyway, let's try and get back onto the uh, to, to the topic of technology. So you, you yeah. talked about the um, the the letter that you'd written uh, or you'd co-signed. Um, you talked about your involvement in data protection way before that. So how did you get involved with uh, data protection that would, I suppose, enough to put to put you as a signatory on that letter? Was it a special interest of yours to get involved in data protection? Uh, not really, um, but um, I've been pretty visible at conferences and special interest groups in Norway. And um, uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a uh, call from uh, one of the um, uh, people working at the data protection agency saying that they wanted experts on this guidelines for um, privacy by design and asked if I could join. And I hadn't given it much thought before then, so this is an extension of your conference in, in interest, then. Yeah. <laughs> so has it has it become a has it become a passion? Data protection. Well, definitely. Um, yeah. There is both a positive and a negative side to data protection, and I uh, because uh, what happened with uh, uh, the Norwegian trace uh, uh, contact tracing app was that it was shut down uh, because they didn't pay attention to data protection. Mm. It suffered negative press because. It, didn't pay attention to uh, privacy. Mm-hmm. And what we saw when they made the second app, which was a totally different uh, approach, totally different architecture, totally different code base, is that the uptake of that app was uh, much uh, reduced because of the bad press of the first app. All right, yeah. So get yeah. it wrong on data protection and it has a, a well, quite a significant consequence. Um, I think so. And, and um, uh, I talked also with people who are normally not very interested in technology or mm. not primarily interested in technology and um, heard several people saying, yeah, I installed the app because of a sense of duty, but I felt really bad about um, about what I knew about the app. Uh, I, I wasn't happy about it. Mm. And I think that when you ignore that sort of uh, concern that people have, uh, then it then you hurt yourself a lot and so from from a pr point of view from a architecture point of view if you don't design your application with privacy in mind then it does hurt your public relationship it does mm-hmm. hurt the uptake of the application it does hurt your reputation it does hurt all of the things that you care about if you want to have a successful application do you think that in, I mean, I, I think it's interesting hearing you talk about this, especially from a Norwegian perspective. Do you, do you think that people care more about data pr- protection and privacy in Norway? Like, does it have an effect on how people use sort of social media applications in Norway? I think that if anything, they they generally per- care less about it. Uh, and I, I'll give one sort of explanation for why mm. and one sort of data point for uh, why I think that. We, at least we think of ourselves as a um, high-trust society. We think of ourselves as a country where the population has high trust in the goodwill of uh, the government. Uh, there, in general, uh, so we, um, our politicians don't get rich out of being politicians. It's, uh, they're, uh, that must be they, nice. <laughs> they, uh, and and I, I think my 
genuine, and I think that most people generally think that, you know, you might not like a politician, you might think they're stupid or have mm-hmm. the wrong ideas or whatever, but you generally recognize that they are in it because they want to improve the world as they see it, not mm-hmm. because they want to have personal enrichment. And, and I think there's a pretty high level of um, trust in both um, politicians and in in the bureaucracy that they might fail, they might have also different priorities, but they're fundamentally there uh, because they care. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, mo- that a lot of the public reaction was that, okay, I'm giving up a lot of data, but I trust the government to keep that data safe. And um, uh, perhaps that trust was warranted in, in the situation. But I do also think that when you are, uh, when the government is demanding more data of you, when, when the demands on your privacy are being increased, the trust will also eventually erode. Mm. So it is a limited capital and you're, you're spending it. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did, uh, was there much of an impact of the introduction of GDPR in, in Norway? Did, did that have a, as big an impact as it had here with people thinking about how to uh, re-architect applications and then actually to a certain degree not doing that but just having a process that was written down because that's essentially what's happened over here. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) And I think that from what I understand, the British and the Norwegian uh, privacy laws are both pretty strong. So so the the laws before GDPR were uh, pretty strong to begin with. So... I, there weren't that many changes, but I think that people were a lot more aware of it and people were a lot more afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we did see this um, rush in, uh, uh, was it 2016, when they had... Uh, yeah, it's a while ago now, actually, isn't it? I think it is 2016. Yeah. So we did see that rush of uh, people wanting to meet this deadline and failing and having no consequences. <laughs> <laughs> it does certainly seem to be that way. I think if you've got a piece of paper that says your policy for how you remove someone's data or give them their data, then that seems to do the job. Uh, <laughs> it does. But I mean, uh, uh, and I, it's been pretty much as expected that um, policing has uh, increased. Uh, and I think that's uh, good to see. But it's also increased gradually. Like, um, I'm pretty um, happy with the Norwegian Data Protection Agency because they're they seem to be pretty uh, much straight shooters in this approach. Oh, it certainly seems uh, proactive from from what you're saying. And um, just to, so, uh, in terms of you know your involvement of how you got how you got involved in that, we talked about your conferences. Um, so you're quite a prolific uh, conference. Well, I suppose founder actually, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> All of them. It's only been two. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's more than I've founded. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, you you started. Uh, which one's the one you started the longest ago? Twenty years ago, the Oslo uh, XP meetup. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a, a um, user group or a meetup. So I started mm. that uh, I think in two thousand three, maybe, and. Um, at that point in time, it was initially just an excuse for me and a couple of friends to get together, uh, have a few drinks and uh, talk about software development. <laughs> and then eventually, uh, some uh, some more people started showing up and that was uh, very uh, cool. And then uh, eventually we started having some talks and uh, uh, speakers who were in um, Oslo from uh, different parts of the world um, uh, stopped by and uh, gave... Uh, uh, talks we had uh, our biggest meetings were with about 110 attendees i think um 
It's very cool. That that makes sense. Uh, tying that back into your uh, your your teachings of using pair programming and TDD, uh, it makes sense that you would actually have that as a meetup group as well. I suppose it was pretty uh, significant for my career path in uh, the late '90s when I read uh, Ken Beck's um, Extreme Programming Explained uh, when mm. it was first published. I've only practiced seven to ten of the twelve original practices that. <laughs> the same time but um it's uh i think it's uh, a lot of uh, good guidance that we got from that and uh, i wanted to to uh, influence the kind of project i ended up on and you've uh, also founded the norwegian agile conference as well uh, yeah that was in 2007 the first year we had that and uh, um, i was uh, a part of the group uh, running it until 2012 and then i gave it over to um, another group uh, or other people, so so we've had uh, several generations of uh, of uh, organizing committees since then, and uh, currently I don't think I even know who's running it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's still running. It's, You've handed uh, it over. Well, it stopped uh, during the uh, during Corona. Understandably, it, it ran last time in 2019, and uh, and they've changed the format pretty significantly the last couple of years, which I'm very happy to see. Uh, but mm. it's. Uh, uh, it was kind of interesting because I think that they came and asked me whether it was okay for me if they changed the format. And I was like, it's yours now. Do whatever you <laughs> like with it. That's the point. But it's something to watch out for when you're starting something is that often people care about your opinions even after you've stopped having them. Mm. It's interesting, though, that you you were able to successfully found something and then hand it off. I think that's uh, that's quite an achievement in itself. That is something that I'm quite proud of, and uh, <laughs> I have to say that uh, if uh, if the uh, conference uh, there turned uh, turns into something even greater than uh, I ever thought it could be, then uh, I'm even happier than uh, if I uh, uh, that that they took it further than I had the vision to do. It, it's interesting that you went from finding. You know something interesting in in the uh, in the XP documentation to actually founding a meetup group and then subsequently founding the the Agile conference as well. What was it that inspired you to get people together and coordinate? You know what what, what was so what 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 was so important about those two things, XP and Agile, that made you decide I need to get people together to talk about this? Well, uh, when I started out, I thought that uh, all of software development was a mess, and I didn't want to work in messy projects. As in, <laughs> I mean, nobody knows what they're doing, and it's, we don't produce results, and it's no fun to work with uh, code bases that we don't understand and bugs that we don't understand. And like all young people, I thought that, you know, you just need to have the right ideas, and then everything will get fixed. And then I saw something that looked like the right ideas, and then I wanted to... Um, optimize the chance that I would end up with a project that had those ideas. And so as a reflection for young people, how's that worked out for you over the last 20 years? <laughs> uh, I think that the most successful part of it is the, um, the number of people that you meet, both professional contacts, but also inspiring people that you get to know over the years. So uh, one thing that I've found is uh, if you want to, you know, know people who are influential in your local area it's a pretty easy uh recipe for that which is to know people that you uh, think are nice and smart and then wait for 20 years 
<laughs> when they become the influencers over time. That does make sense. Absolutely. So that must have given you an opportunity to meet some really fantastic people over, you know, 20 years of those two initiatives. Yeah, very much. And some, yeah. So let, let, let's stick with the positive <laughs> parts of that. <laughs> well, on that note, um, we've barely scratched the surface on the test and trace topic. So let's go back. Talk us through the timeline and the evolution between those two apps. Uh, we saw the first app that was um, launched with quite a bit of fanfare um, and then died pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it was, uh, uh, it, uh, it took the Norwegian Public Institute of Public Health about half a year before they were able to launch the second, um, the second version of the app. And in that um, launch, they did not want this to have the same fate. Mm-hmm. What they did was uh, first they had uh, they open sourced everything from the from the get go, uh, which was a um, first it does give a lot of confidence to people that this is um, in their interest to install, but also um, I mentioned earlier that they got a lot of uh, freedom of information type of requests. Mm. And it, they actually uh, reported, no, reported as noticing uh, less work as they open sourced the software because there were fewer prying eyes that wanted to get into, uh, into seeing what they were doing. So developing in the open, I think, was uh, less hassle for something that's uh, of public interest like this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're dealing with a lot of freedom of information requests. Yeah, and the second uh, thing was that um, so they they wanted to make everything public. Um, we also made uh, I also helped them make a um, a public Slack for um, uh, discussions around um, uh, privacy concerns, technical concerns, um, whatever people wanted. Um, so there is a public Slack operated by the Norwegian Pu- Institute of Public Health where people wow. can have a open discussion about these things. So the the software development team is there. Um, uh, the project management is there. The um, uh, the risk uh, risk uh, officer is there. Wow, how how active is that? It's uh, still pretty active, but uh, it was most active during the um, uh, before or around the initial launch of uh, the second version of the app. Um, but uh, currently, we're uh, sharing um, um, uh, articles about. Uh, contact tracing both in Norway and other places um, mm. on on the Slack. So there was uh, today there was a um, uh, there's been a little bit of discussion of recently about um, um, some uh, uh, press articles about uh, how many people have been notified, how many people have installed the app, and so on. So in, and in that case, uh, the crowd on the Slack is. Um, Pretty supportive of uh, uh, the uh, Norwegian Institute of Public Health and uh, trying to do our best to uh, advise them on how to deal with public pushback in one way or another. Mm. Mm. Uh, so they have this uh, uh, public Slack, and then uh, in addition, they uh, asked uh, the Norwegian Computing Association and also um, uh, the Norwegian Union of Technical Workers or, or um, uh, like engineer engineering workers. Uh, to nominate uh, uh, two people each uh, for a um, advisory council on um, technical issues and especially privacy during the development of uh, a second version. Uh, so I was uh, nominated there. I was joined. Uh, I joined this uh, committee as 
representative of the Norwegian Computing Association. Wow. Uh, and we had um, weekly meetings uh, where they would uh, present the risk assessment, they would present the uh, protocols, the, when the source code was launched, they were, we were, had a, a guided walkthrough where we could start looking at this. Um, and uh, through this, uh, there was uh, a concern because uh, with these um, uh, new or the current generation of contact tracing apps, you have um, uh, you have um, basically uh, your contact information is just stored on your phone until you're reported as being infected, mm. uh, and then you have to uh, upload those to what's basically a bulletin board where everybody can compare it to what they've stored on their phone. This is the basic uh, protocol of the uh, distributed privacy preserving proximity tracing protocol, or the DP three. Uh, DP3T uh, <laughs> protocol. Wow, is that a global uh, protocol? Is that something that was specific to Norway? This this was uh, the one uh, that uh, um, uh, Google and Apple implemented yeah. in their exposure notification framework. It came out of a research co collaboration with Lin Europe, mm -hmm. uh, and the first app to launch on it was uh, in Switzerland, which was uh, at the end of May of two thousand twenty. Mm, mm. So, uh, so Norway was pretty late in this, and uh, Denmark launched a pretty similar app to or, uh, to the Norwegian one. And um, the company that um, adapted the technology for Denmark was um, uh, able to uh, to reuse that in Norway. So they actually were awarded the tender of developing the app for Norway as well. And the Danish oh, right. health authorities uh, let them keep the source code. So we were. We were lucky in inheriting, so that, that's legacy code, but in a positive sense, we got Denmark's <laughs> legacy. <laughs> the, uh, the open sourcing method the, that you talked about, though, is, is quite unique, I suppose. Uh, yeah, possibly. And, and uh, there's an interesting story about that as well. Because, um, so you have this um, concern that uh, when people post their contacts, uh, contact points to the public, bulletin board so others mm. can see if they've been exposed. Um, you want to make sure that they were actually infected uh, sure. so that uh, you don't have uh, people uh, like uh, jokers uh, uh, scaring people unnecessary. Um, and in most countries what you do is you get a code either with SMS or you get it from your doctor and you type that code into your app to upload it. So it's sort of an authorization code. But Norway, I think, uh, is pretty uh, far ahead in having a national registry of uh, infectious diseases. So we have, um, so when you do a coronavirus uh, a test, uh, the result of that test is um, stored in a, uh, a database of, uh, operated by the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. And what they did is that they implemented a authorization where you can use your national ID to authorize with their um, with uh, uh, the uh, infection database and then it can check whether you're infected or not and it can use that as authorization for uploading the data. Um, and, and that's very good for this um, security issue of people not uploading false data. Mm, mm. Um, but it reintroduces a privacy issue <laughs> Uh, which is that now you've got those contact points associated with your national identifier. Mm. So now you know what person that is. And that can be something, for example, if somebody wants to prove that you and I were in contact and 
if um, if I uploaded my contact information and and they get hold of your phone, they can correlate that and see that we were indeed in contact. So how how do you work around that then? Um, that's uh, that's the interesting bit because this is of course much more of a public concern than it is of a health concern. This is. Mm-hmm. This is something that uh, people who are concerned about privacy rate as higher priority than people who are concerned about health. And that's the way it should be, right? Uh, and you got the situation where you got a company that had a contract to develop this application by a deadline, the 21st of December. Um, and they are their contract is to develop an application that can um, track uh, infection or track contact. It's mm-hmm. not to develop this privacy uh, part. Um, but uh, you also got um, people who are concerned about privacy wants this to be done in a private way. And so a researcher from uh, NTNU, which is the Norwegian Technical and Scientific University of in Trondheim, he wrote a paper on how you could introduce a higher level of anonymity in this. We call it anonymous tokens. And the way it works is that basically um, you encrypt a value, you upload it to the infection registry, which signs the encrypted value. You get the signed encrypted value back, you decrypt it. And now the decrypted value, which you can prove that it was signed, Mm -hmm. but you can't correlate it to which of the tokens were signed. And you use that as an authorization. This is the same protocol as is used by Privacy Pass, which was originally, I think, developed to avoid having capture of all kind uh, of all things. And so, in this uh, these meetings with the um, advisory board, uh, uh, me and the other uh, three people who were there, we brought with us uh, this paper, and we were in dialogue with this uh, cryptographic researcher. And uh, we said, you know, um, we think this would be a really great thing to have in the app. And uh, uh, the Norwegian Institute of Public Health said, this looks like a good idea. We don't have the time to do it. Will <laughs> you make a pull request? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we said, oh, I'm sure that, the, the, that this researcher will make a pull request for you. And we went back and he's, he was like, well, the app is written in Samarine and C-sharp, and I only know how to program in Go. <laughs> <laughs> so what to do now? And so in the end, there were, uh, I think, were uh, four people, including myself, involved in uh, making this pull request, porting the Go code to C-sharp, um, making a NuGet package out of it, and introducing it into the app in such a way that it could be um, toggled on and off uh, so to not impact the, um, the launch of the application. And um, we were able to, to complete and uh, merge this uh, uh, around, uh, I think, uh, the beginning of January. And it was turned on in um, March, I think. Uh, so that's the way that uploads of um, uh, contacts are, um, is handled uh, at this moment. That's pretty incredible. So does that, that that makes that sounds like it makes Norway's app probably the most secure in the world. <laughs> it would be if uh, others had established the identity of the user at the point in time when they upload the tokens. Mm. So it is it is a compensation for a, a reduction in privacy otherwise. Mm. But it but I think it's a very good good example of uh, 
using technology and thinking about privacy to improve a technical solution. It shows that that privacy technology is a field of its own. It's not like something you it's not something you can do as an amateur effort and just slap onto an application. You have to think of it as a primary concern. Yeah, well, I think it's probably one of the most complex aspects of coding as well, really. It, it's, yeah, beyond me. <laughs> well, it is, it is very interesting because uh, I think most people have a um, pretty good intuition of um, uh, secure programming because security mm. is about making sure that people don't get information that they don't have, right? Mm. Um, and it's about analyzing who can, who can be a threat to our application, who are our attackers, what kind of threat model do we have to have? What kind of threat actors are out in the world? And privacy basically means that you have to think of yourself as a threat actor. Mm. So it has to, you have to think of if, if I suddenly turn into a bad guy, or if the person who takes my job after me turns into a bad guy, or if the person at the next office turns into a bad guy, or if there is somebody who's holding my family hostage, forcing me to do something, or if somebody gets access to my computer through social engineering or hacking, what can they do with the information they have? So the idea of privacy is that you don't want to possess information that could uh, lead someone in your, um, in your situation to, uh, to um, cause damage, even if you think you're a good person and you're a good person now it's a more complex field than i think people give it credit for it is and and mm. also there's lots of fun uh, technology technological uh, solutions that you can put into it as well yeah so the uh, the pull request then were there many have there been many other people that have actually contributed to the app in uh, in this sort of fashion i think this is the only uh, significant mm. contribution uh, and it required a lot of effort so I think that I uh, that personally I spent probably about forty hours on this uh, pull request alone, um, and I was in the weeks leading up to Christmas, so uh, <laughs> so I didn't have the best Christmas gifts from my kids this year. <laughs> Luckily, my better half is very good with the gifts, so so I was covered. Well, it's better than the gift of security. <laughs> oh. <laughs> exactly. Now, and here's here's the um, uh, the final sort of uh, triumph with this uh, story, which is that in uh, May this year, uh, the Norwegian Data Protection Agency awarded uh, this uh, contribution to uh, the contact tracing app uh, with a recognition for um, privacy by design. So they have a yearly recognition of a significant achievement in privacy by design, and this was this year's winner. Well, that's fantastic news! Congratulations. So, <laughs> and and of course the the um, uh, real uh, innovation there was by the um, uh, re by the cryptographic researchers. So mm. I got a, a very nice honourable mention, but it was uh, someone else who got the prize, so, and that was well deserved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it it takes many people to contribute to that, but you know, even those forty hours, as you mentioned, that's. Uh, that's quite a lot of work to go into. I think that's, uh, I mean, great news. I think it's, um, I think it's a really novel, novel approach to have open sourced software like that and be able to accept pull requests, external pull requests. I think it's, um, I think there's a lot of governments certainly that could that could learn from that approach. 
Yeah, I do think that uh, NHS in, in Britain has quite a bit of software that's publicly, uh, that, that is opened up. Mm. So, so it does, um, and it does make sense for a software that's developed with the public's money for that software to be open. Now, um, I think that the contributions like this pull request uh, will seldom be uh, significant. Mm. It will, uh, because um, uh, while... Well, it might be fun to uh, contribute to a piece of software that you use on your spare time that, that's sort of uh, fascinating to you. It might be less uh, attempting to spend your time doing the work of the government for the government. Yes, maybe. <laughs> but, but it is. Uh, I th so, so it might be um, just a way to say, you know, if you really care about this so much, then just step up and make a contribution. So it's also... A way for the government to uh, shut down uh, unreasonable criticism. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it, it's got a lot of benefits. I think to being able to do that. I think um, I think we you know to your point of there being a number of British government uh, services that are available on GitHub. Not all of them active repositories, it has to be said. But um, I think it's. Uh, it's a it's a positive sign that we're moving in that direction, but uh, this certainly seems like the the biggest success story so far. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think that uh, so uh, of course I can't read the mind of uh, the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, but I do think that they're quite pleased as well because um, uh, now all the um, talk is about uh, Corona certificates and these digital green certificates, mm. and uh, uh, the Norwegian. Um, uh, the Norwegian app for uh, scanning those certificates is actually also open sourced on GitHub at this point in time. Yeah, so we haven't quite gone that far in the UK yet at the time of uh, recording. Um, we don't have anything that's to do with certificates or even there's there's talk about having ha had the vaccine or a double vax of the of the vaccine um, giving you the ability to then go away uh, on holiday and things like that but it's not really anything that has been really talked about in terms of like having almost like a a vaccine passport or um anything like that but it sounds like you are a little bit further ahead as a country yeah my, i do uh, there's a eu wide uh, uh there's an eu wide uh, uh, initiative on this i'm not sure exactly what oh, the well, rules of course are. we've opted out <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> aren't you aren't you lucky <laughs> well you got to change your passports to back to blue wasn't yeah, it yeah yeah we don't have a vaccine passport but you know uh, our real passports are blue now so that's uh, that's great <laughs> so i have here on my phone you can see this is uh, this is the national uh, version of this gotcha so this one says that I can travel in the EU with my wow. uh, little vaccine, and there's a uh, QR code here. This is Zebor. Um, uh, no, it's a Zlibd encoded Zebor. Excuse me, Zlib compressed Zebor encoded Java web token. Actually, wow. Uh, so it's. So if you're familiar with uh, OpenID Connect, uh, the, the data that's in this QR code is basically a compressed uh, jot. Wow, that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. But what color is your passport? <laughs> we have red passports, so we did. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, my, my passport's red because a few years on that, on that yet, but... 
Oh well, you know, I'm yeah, sure so... it, I'm, I'm sure someone had a great idea about why that would uh, <laughs> make sense. Um, but obviously, we've missed out on having yacht tokens and a pass and a vaccine passport. <laughs> uh, of course, this is a, a, a privacy concern here as well. So they so they we have a similar um, a advisory board for uh, for these uh, passport these mm. vaccine passports, but. Um, it's, so, are you are, have you been able to get yourself onto that advisory group as well for the yeah, European the, Union? They pretty well not for the European Union for the Norwegian implementation mm. of the European Union. Um, All right, I see. Yeah, so so they pretty much just uh, um, asked the people who contributed in the in the um, uh, contact tracing app uh, to come back for this, and Makes they sense. added a few more. Um, but um, the process is quite different because the the. Uh, privacy concerns are very different in their nature. So, what, what, how are the how are the concerns different? How do you need to solve them differently? Well, uh, the main concern here is that uh, so we uh, so the first thing which I think I uh, we, we had here, which was a big discussion. You got this. This is the EU one. This is uh, uh, mm -hmm. blue with uh, yellow font on it. And then you got this one, which is because I'm vaccinated, it's uh, green with white mm -hmm. font on it. And this one is national. And you can see there on the national one, you can say, see it says J bro star star star. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's um, uh, to uh, that's that is a privacy concern uh, that when you show this, uh, you don't necessarily need to um, to uh, provide identification for who you are. Um, because uh, in most countries we value the freedom of movement uh, quite high. So these vaccine passports, they can be used as sort of a social control or, or a limitation on um, who can go where. And, mm. and um, even more importantly, we'll, um, we are used to being able to go about in, in our country without carrying identification papers. Mm -hmm. Do we want a future where you can uh, where you can be uh, demanded to present your identification papers, papers, please. Uh, and, mm. <laughs> and, and as far as I can see, these are concerns that are much more about law and much more about um, the legislative process and, and how the legislation is carried out than it is about technology. Yeah, I think it depends on how it's used, I suppose, doesn't it? You know, there is definitely some... Uh, it's more of a yes. political and law concern, to your point, yeah. So, for example, if... Uh, so, the, the our question, which uh, the parliament has failed to answer, I think, sufficiently, is, you know, if, if you operate a um, restaurant, can you demand that people show their uh, their certificate in order to um, uh, enter? Can you demand that they show their um, uh, their driver's license in addition to verify mm -hmm. that it's the right person? Uh, what can you do if they re re refuse? Can you? Uh, um, is it illegal to refuse? Is it illegal to require these uh, kind of uh, identification? And in which situations? Which uh, which direction is uh, is Norway going in with that? Uh, frankly, we don't know, uh, <laughs> and the, the um, that has been a um, fascinating part of uh, being in this discussion because this is a uh, this is the the government and the parliament is deciding these 
based uh, um, depending upon um, how they choose to legislate it. It can either be like legis- uh, parliamentary legislation or it can be governmental legislation. And um, that legislation was supposed to be completed before the summer. And as far as I've heard so far, and, and we promised to be notified if that changed, uh, they haven't actually completed the notification, the legislation, but they've rolled out the passports anyway. Well, that'll be interesting to see how that progresses. So, so uh, <laughs> uh, one thing that's very fascinating about working in privacy, and that's uh, a uh, something you'll see with a few other fields as well, is that it is very cross-disciplinary. Mm. And in when we wrote this um, joint statement against the first app, um, a lot of the signatories were um, also um, lawyers or, or legal professionals. And we got a pretty good network with technologists and legal professionals. So, so we have some. Um, uh, so we have some people working in the Norwegian bureaucracy. We've got uh, uh, people who are active in the um, in the um, uh, legal department of the local university. I have to say, I mean, that is very progressive because I think so often decisions. I, I think so, to some extent within the EU, but mostly within the United Kingdom, some decisions that are made around technology are usually made without technologists being present. Um, and I think it, it's quite novel that you would have such a tightly knit group between technologists, lawyers, etc. And, uh, you know, from the conversations we've had with Norwegians on the show, that certainly seems to be, Norway seems to take a very progressive approach to technology, more so than, than we, we have in the UK. Well, I hope so, but um, around the privacy concerns on the initial tracing application, there was a huge uh, storm around the, the initial uh, digital contact tracing app in the mm. UK, wasn't there? Yes, there was, but mostly just because it didn't work <laughs> <laughs> was was the main issue. Is it was um, there was it was internally developed by NHSX, which is essentially a. Um, uh, a private company um, internally was doing some work on behalf of NHS, the NHS and they built an app that basically just didn't work it wasn't fit mm. for purpose and um, ultimately had to they had to take the relatively brave decision of throwing it away um, I don't think that it was necessarily communicated particularly well in Parliament as to who, what and why um, and also where the money was actually going because there was a huge um I mean, you can you can listen to this in more detail on on the on the on the other episode. But I think in terms of the, um, there was a whole load of money that was spent on contact tracing in general, not just the application development, and it all got rolled up into how many how many millions or billions of pounds have we spent on an app? And actually, yeah. that wasn't quite true. It was all very uh, poorly communicated, which was probably part of the biggest problem. One of the biggest parts of the problem, but yeah, the initial app just didn't work. Frankly, that now, was the was, main problem. Uh, there was also from the privacy community, there was a lot of um, uh, of uh, concerns there as well, because um, at the point in time there were two uh, basic designs for building these apps, um, mm. and uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, the DP3T uh, mm-hmm. protocol. Um, was um, originally Switzerland and Italy, I think. And then Germany adopted it, uh, but initially Germany, Fr- France, and UK had another approach, which was called yeah. uh, Robert, I think, um, robust 
uh, exposed through tracking, something like this. Um, and uh, uh, Germany uh, abandoned that after privacy concerns. And uh, and then UK also uh, followed suit, but I think France yeah, it wasn't really it. around. It wasn't really around pri- privacy concerns with the UK. It, uh, uh, it was more to do not. with uh, it just didn't work very well. Um, it wasn't very good at detecting whether someone had come into contact with somebody else. It was the the whole mm. Bluetooth um, connectivity. I think was uh, not really actually picking up contacts. Um, so I think it was just poor coding, <laughs> mm. mostly. Yeah, but I'm that's... sure if it had worked, we probably would have had privacy concerns. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, um, the, the uh, storm around it, the controversy around it was actually bigger than the one we had in Norway in the public mm. uh, uh, dialogue. So, so I thought it was interesting because our app was, of course, a lot more invasive in that it collected mm. everybody's information all the time, uh, both uh, both. Uh, uh, Bluetooth contacts and location information to uh, one huge central database. So that was uh, uh, quite invasive. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, a different level of controversy, I think, there. <laughs> Yours yeah, actually but... worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never know if it did because uh, there is some, uh, as far as I know, there, uh, there's there been a little bit of digging. We've tried to do a, a um, freedom of information requests, or some of my friends have tried to do that to find out whether it actually detected any um, any infection. But we we have a, so far we don't know. Oh, that's interesting because I think I'd probably just taken an assumption there that it was working. I mean, at least it was collecting data. Oh, yeah, it uh, was collecting data. That's mm. for sure. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, unless there's, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more we could say and we could go on for ages. But I'm conscious that I've taken uh, quite a lot of your time this evening. I'm getting pinged by my uh, by my uh, wife uh, for um, I think yeah soon it's bedtime for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note, then we'll uh, we'll say goodbye. So, um, thank you very much for joining today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, the pleasure pleasure has been mine, Chris. <laughs>